Welcome back to the Fangirl Forum. I'm your host, Meredith Loftus, aka your friendly neighborhood fangirl. 20 years ago, the world was introduced to a totally jerkin movie. Josie and the Pussycats is a satire on consumerism and the music industry, yet at its heart, it's a movie about female friendship, girl power, and great rock and roll. The movie was so ahead of its time, but sadly, it was a box office bomb. Yet, since then, it has risen from the ashes and has since become a cult classic. To celebrate the special anniversary of the best movie ever, I'm joined today by a fellow Josie fan and writer of the unofficial oral history, best movie ever, and oral history of Elephant and Kaplan's Josie and the Pussycats. Give it up for Russ Burlingame. Hi, how's it going? Going good. I am so happy you're here because you and I both share this love of Josie and the Pussycats, though I'd say yours is exponentially more because you are diving into making this book, which is so incredible. And I'm glad we actually get to record one of our conversations about yeah. this movie. Yeah. I mean, technically I recorded the one that, because you, I, I think I could say without spoiling, I yeah. talked to you for the book. Um, mm -hmm. Technically I recorded that one too, but it wasn't for broadcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before we like dive into the book, we just, I feel like we should talk about the fact that Josie and the Pussycats turned 20. Whoa. It's been 20 years. How does that make you feel that we've hit the 20 year mark? It's really, you know, it's really funny because I, it's one of those things that I was consciously aware of making the oral history. In fact, like I told people like, Hey, I think the 20th anniversary will be a hook. I want to get the book out in 2021. Mm -hmm. And so like, I had a couple of publishers, like smaller publishers who were interested, but the reason that I'm self-publishing the first like run of books is because nobody could guarantee they'd have it like on shelves this year mm -hmm. and so it was a whole conversation uh that, that I've had a bunch of times but at the same time like yeah when it actually when everybody starts talking about it and it like it's a different conversation I think when like Universal Pictures skinned their Twitter account for the weekend yeah and a bunch of like stories by outlets that aren't geek outlets like Vogue ran a whole thing on the costumes and stuff and so it does, it kind of like brings home like the reality of like, wow, it's been 20 years mm -hmm. when people who aren't you and me and who don't like care about this movie on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. are suddenly like, hey, let's do an hour-long special on Sirius XM. Yeah, which is, yeah, it's just been really wild to see so many different outlets and places I was not expecting to yeah. just show this like love for Josie and the Pussycats. In fact, I remember I chatted with a coworker this past week and I was like, oh yeah, Josie and the Pussycats. And she's like, oh, I love that movie. I'm like, whoa, didn't yeah. know that like so many other people individually like felt this way. Cause like, you know, we've chatted with people online who yeah. we know are fans, but it's been really cool to hear from just the people that I interact with day to day of yeah. like, oh yeah, I loved that movie. I can't yeah. believe it's 20 years old. I think too, one of the things, because because it's turned into a cult classic, so much of the fan base and not, not like the people who enjoyed the movie, but the fan base mm -hmm. are really vocal yes. about it. And so I think whenever I run into somebody day to day who just like, oh yeah, that was a fun movie. And like, it hasn't turned it into a thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm always like, oh, cool. Yeah. Cause I will admit I'm fully aware, like even before I started the book, I'm fully aware that it became like a thing. I've always enjoyed the movie. I saw it in the theaters. Nice. I, when I was 21, I had a huge crush on Rachel Lee Cook. So that was, you know, so I, I've seen the movie, I saw the movie ages ago. I've always enjoyed it, but like, I hadn't watched it in a while and I brought it back out and we talked about it on a podcast that I was on, the Emerald City mm -hmm. Video Podcast. And it was our first issue, our first episode of the podcast. And so my love for Josie became like the defining thing that a mm -hmm. lot of people met me with, so to speak, on the show. And so when you're a middle-aged dude and your defining characteristic is your love for a movie aimed at teen girls, like I just decided like I'm gonna lean into the bit. Like I'm just yeah. gonna, I'm just gonna 
lean into the fact that I love this movie and make it a joke. Not like not a joke, but you know what I mean. Like totally. lean into the inherent humor of that. Mm-hmm. And did that for like three years before I finally was like, you know, where I and I, I might be sorry, blowing through your intro and going into it's all good. Full disclosure for anybody listening, I work from home and have three children. Anytime I talk to an adult, I just go. <laughs> <laughs> So I, it was a few years ago, actually, that I first thought, like, I should do a book about this. And mm-hmm. part of the reason is I'm an entertainment journalist at my day job. And my day job, like, part of our brand, so to speak, is we're very trivia-driven. We're very fan-driven. And so it tends to be we'll cover every square inch of a thing, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like if I do an interview, instead of running an interview as, like, a Q&A, it's like we'll run four different stories with the four best quotes, you know, mm-hmm. and so and it's that way every cool thing that somebody might Google ends up as a headline. And it's not just us. Like we are big in the space, but like it's not just us. This is how entertainment journalism works now. Mm-hmm. And all I could think as I was like trying to find some of the behind the scenes stuff about Josie is like it wasn't that long ago, but this isn't how our business worked in 2001. Yeah. And so part of this whole thing was just taking this this movie that I cared about and just trying to apply like essentially what I do every single day to it where it's just like if this movie came out in 2017 instead of 2001 we would know every single thing that I'm putting in this book mm-hmm. without me writing a book the junket would have been done differently the coverage would have been done differently even if the movie flopped we would yeah. still have a lot to you know what I mean and so it's it's part of it to me is just this thing of like we now live in an age where you assume that if you care about something you can find out enough to fill a book mm-hmm. and in the case of Josie that wasn't true and so me being me I was just like so how about I just make the book <laughs> yeah and I'm so glad that you have decided to do that and yeah that is something that I think about you know like if this movie came out in 2017 and I feel like aspects of it would have been changed like you know inclusion of social media and which I think is also very timely to be a part of that world it wouldn't feel so foreign but you know like the way we would know about this movie yeah it would have taken away from like the fun of like finding and discovering and rediscovering different parts about this movie, the history of it. And yeah, it makes me so excited that you had this idea to do this. And how long have you been working on this book? I've been working on the book since last summer, basically, or spring, a little under a year. Okay. It's been in the back of my mind for about five years, four years. Mm -hmm. And, um, Part of it is because it's a niche fandom and because I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. Mm -hmm. Every time I started to get serious about like, maybe I should do this, something would be announced and it would be like, oh, I'm going to be in that person's way. I'll wait. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so when I first thought about it and started like putting together a proposal, Mondo released the vinyl, the Mm -hmm. vinyl record soundtrack, and it came with an oral history in it. When I saw oral history, I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. And it is really cool. Don't get me wrong. But it's also like eight pages long. And basically, like, it's basically two or three really long form interviews that they did with, I think it was like Harry, Deb, Rachel, Rosario, and then Mm -hmm. a couple from the costume designer. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's not at all to demean the person who wrote that, that the, the, they came from a writer at Refinery29 who's terrific, mm-hmm. whose name, of course, escapes me at the moment because when you say somebody's terrific, that's what happens. But um, so the, the, the oral history that was included with the record is exactly what you probably should write to be included with a record. But, but in my head, I was just like, oh, there's way more than that. And so like at first I, I held off because I heard it was going to be, there was going to be something in the record and I didn't want to step on toes. And then like I got busy with other stuff. And then a couple of years later, I was like, okay, now I'm going to do the Josie thing. And uh, they announced that there was this podcast called Josie and the Podcats by Maria Ah. Lewis. And it's a terrific show. And in fact, one of the struggles that I have had writing the book is trying not to too closely emulate their structure. Mm -hmm. 
because in terms of telling the history of the movie and in terms of having a, a like a, a traditional structure, like they basically got it perfect. It's like they had six episodes and it was mm-hmm. like, here's one about the comics and the history of the property. Here's one about development. Here's one about production, the soundtrack, the blah, blah, blah. And then the reunion, con- you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I had, I've, I've had to make a conscious effort while putting the book together to not like ask all of the exact same questions that Maria asked and structure the book in the exact same way Maria structured her, her uh, podcast mm-hmm. because it's really good and it's kind of exactly what you would want. And I think for a lot of people, uh, you wouldn't necessarily need my book if you had Maria's podcast. I think for me, part of it became the people who Maria talked to are largely the exact same people who everybody talks to when the movie comes up. It's like she talked to Harry and Deb, she talked to Rachel. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of it was just journalism, it was like research. And so to me, uh, part of the idea behind the oral history was to talk to people who've never talked about this movie before, really, because it didn't have the kind of press junket that we have today. And to be able to kind of tell the story of the movie in their words, like my writing is very sparse mm-hmm. in the book. What I am doing, and I, there are different kinds of oral histories, and you, you like I've, I've actually read nothing but entertainment nonfiction for the last eight months while I've been working on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've like uh, a couple of the oral histories that if you want to get a sense for what I'm kind of shooting for, they did one called As If it was by Jen Cheney. It was about Clueless. Mm-hmm. And then there was another one and I can't remember the author's name, but it was called All Right, All Right, All Right. And it was about the making of Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. And both of those are very close to what I want to do. In the Clueless book, she finds a really perfect balance of not putting herself in there very much, but also making sure that her brief spots of narration cover all the necessary bases to connect, to be connective tissue between the quotes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, like, I, I love that book so much. I actually approached her about potentially writing an introduction, introduction for my book. And she was just like, I'm really honored. I'd love to, I have not seen Josie and it seems like that's a deal breaker. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate her honesty. Yeah. <laughs> but so in any event, a big part of what I'm doing is trying to, t- to let the people I talk to tell the story in their words. And so it is a lot of, and it's funny because like some part of me feels like I'm cheating because as I'm putting this whole thing together, it's a lot of like cutting and pasting, mm-hmm. but it's incredibly difficult to try and structure a whole story without yourself being the one who's driving that narrative. And so it's, I think I almost made it harder for myself making it an oral history than I I would have if I just said, screw it, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but I think like that gives it such a unique voice that yes, what you're doing is incredibly difficult. And I'm sure it's taken so much time to like find organic ways to like weave together quotes. So it like makes sense. And yes, you are taking the harder route, but I think the overall product not to be biased because I'm a part of it, but I think it's going to come out really special and unique. And um, which is like, I think what fans of Josie and the Pussycats are looking for, you know? I hope so. One thing I will say too, in terms of like, I, I say like, I made this harder for myself. That's true to an extent. But one thing that has been a lot easier is that because so many of the people who are involved in this movie have gone on to become really famous, some of the inner like i'm still doing interviews like i told my my editor that she would have a first draft in Mm mid-may and i'm going to be doing interviews probably until may 5th wow uh, because the nice thing about the structure of the oral history is that you can basically just drop those quotes in anytime if i was writing a more traditional book and if when i talk to somebody late and have to put their quote in, I would also have to go in and rework a bunch of stuff in order to be like, okay, well, it fits here in the timeline, but it doesn't fit here in the narrative of what I've constructed around the timeline. With the oral history, it's basically just the timeline. And so you can kind of just take things and go, oh, okay, well, if I'm doing the interview right up until, like, I can have a first draft basically done, and then just go in and drop quotes in, and Mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah. And so that's been really helpful in helping me to I've been writing the whole time. Like it's, it's like I'm doing interviews and, and I'm also writing so that that way I can say like, oh yeah, I have like 80 pages of X done, even though I haven't talked to Rosario Dawson yet, you mm-hmm. know? And 
so that allows me to be able to know when I talk to her, I'm just going to drop the quotes in mm-hmm. and keep moving. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up, you know, you've been co- conducting interviews starting since like last summer. I know you've talked with the directors. I've known you've talked with a bunch of fans and some of the cast members. Like what have you been most surprised to learn while conducting these interviews? I think one of the things I've been most surprised to learn is how many of the people who were involved with the movie had no idea that it had kind of found its second life. Mm. Um, Obviously, Harry Elfont and Deb Kaplan, who directed the movie, and Rachel Lee Cook, who plays the main character, they knew. And, you know, they found out fairly recently, too. They discovered it when they joined Twitter, essentially, and started having people bombarding them with messages. But for a lot of people who aren't like the main characters in the movie, mm-hmm. like even the, the a few years ago, they had that record release party in LA where Mondo put on a special screening of the movie and like Rachel and Tara and Rosario were there with the directors and Kay Hanley to play the music. And so all those people, it's like, you can look at the people who are at the screening and be like, well, they clearly know, <laughs> like they know what's going on. They've seen the crazy screaming crowd full of cosplayers. But like, I talked to a lot of folks who their first question when I got them on the phone was like, why Josie and the Pussycats? Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, I, like there were some people who I would explain like, oh no, this has found a second life. And they would just be like, oh, that's delightful. I love this movie. And I never, I was always sad that it didn't work better. I'm really glad that it, you know, uh, I think I'm very close to quoting Tom Butler who plays Agent Kelly in the movie. (laughs) Um, Tom was just, absolutely charming to talk to but like when I talked to him he had no clue whatsoever which when you are 65 and not on social media probably not that many people are telling you about Josie and the Pussycats probably yeah (laughs) that would make sense but yeah so that was one of the things that's really surprised me is how many people involved with the film are kind of just now finding out either through social media or through me literally calling them that this movie has found a new life I spoke with somebody and I won't, uh, I won't say who, but I spoke with somebody who literally told me like that when I reached out to them nine months ago, they didn't realize this wasn't just one crazy person on a mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so like, it wasn't until they saw a bunch of stories happen because over the weekend uh, as you know, over the weekend, it was the 20th anniversary and universal changed their Twitter to be Josie and like Vogue did a story and all this kind of stuff. And so it was like, once that started unfolding, I heard back from this people from this person's agents, and it was just like, "Oh, I guess we should do something." People are people actually are want to know this, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, it's literally to that extent that some of the people involved, even once I reach out to them, they're just like, "Why is somebody talking about Josie?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and with the fans, I think one of the most interesting things is how many of the fans have really dove into like the movie and the subtext and the messaging and things that like, I think that with a lot of, I guess the, the, the fandom I would kind of liken it to the most almost as Star Trek. Okay. Because it's enjoy the entertainment value of the product, but so much of what appeals to them is like the ethical code of the, of the, the show, of the brand. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's the ethical code with Josie so much as it is like the the kind of message of like the, you know, friendship and nonconformity and, you know, questioning, you know, the, the things that we all take for granted. But I do think it's it was a little bit surprising to me how many of the people who are like hardcore fans, that was really at the root of their fandom as opposed to just like the music's really cool. All those yeah. really, it's a fun movie, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, and again, like as somebody who enjoys this movie and who does overthink all of that stuff, like mm-hmm. I, I won't say that I was shocked by it, but just as somebody who covers pop culture for a living, I do feel like most fandoms on the whole, you get about 15% of people who are super thoughtful and 85% of people who are just like, oh, that movie was fun. Yeah, that's such a nice surprise to be able to see how many people have like, looked deeper beneath the surface of this movie to have it resonate with them so much. And then I really love the fact that you're kind of like reintroducing this joy of this movie to people who have long forgotten about this movie. And 
I think it's super exciting that even though you are trying to keep yourself out of the narrative, like you're bringing people back into the narrative of this history and this story that like needed to be told. I, I was just gonna, I, one of the things that I think is, is been my kind of guiding light through, through a lot of this is the people who back the crowdfunding campaign and who are like trying to make sure that I do this right mm-hmm. are like, they're probably the hardcore Josie fans. And then the people who find this book, once it's a book, I think a lot of those people aren't necessarily going to have been big fans of the movie. They're going to be people who found it because like it was mentioned on an entertainment website or like, oh, Alan Cummings in here or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's that element of like, I think most of the people who read this after the first three months are going to be people for whom they go back and go like, should I watch this movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I will say um, I have at least one person who backed the book uh, and I, I can't say his name right this minute because we're going to make an announcement soon that he's uh, designing the book for me. Oh, cool. In the comics industry. And like he reached out to me and was like, hey, I, I would love to design this book. And once we got chatting, he revealed like I had never seen this movie, but I he likes me personally. Like I, I bought some art from him at some point. I've Oh, that's stuff. so cool. And so he like he pre-ordered a book and then went and bought the DVD on the strength of like, this is a book that's going to exist from a person I know Mm -hmm. and then fell in love with the movie and was like, Hey, and like the first two things he said to me about designing the book, I'm like, Oh man, you, you get exactly what, what this should be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and I think it's, I'm trying to strike a a delicate balance in, in the book itself of like, telling a relatively straightforward kind of journalistic story of like not because I've, I've watched a lot of those like fan documentaries mm-hmm. uh, I'm a huge Springsteen fan for instance and there's this documentary called uh, greetings from the parking lot mm-hmm. and it's like a documentary that's just like talking to a bunch of fans who are tailgating and some of it is really earnest and heartfelt and fun and then some of it is like okay this is 30 percent too long and also, I think if you're not a super fan, those things aren't super appealing because there's no moment where it's like, holy cow, Rosario Dawson talked to him. Holy cow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, like, I'm trying to strike the balance of making it a relatively straightforward, like, journalistic endeavor where we tell this story in a meaningful way, but also having it be appealing to fans and earnest and heartfelt. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the suggestions that this guy came up with for the, the design of the book very much embrace that where it's like, this is really fun, but it's not going to do anything to interfere with how serious the book kind of looks as a book. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things I didn't want to do was to have every page have like leopard print where the page number is or something because yeah. it would have felt like an early nineties, like actually literally would have felt like the mass market paperback adaptation of the movie script that I have over here, you know? Yeah. And I didn't want, like, I, I want to acknowledge the fun and the the aesthetic and all that of the movie, but I don't want to do it in such a way that the whole book feels like it's designed for an audience that doesn't exist anymore for like 13 mm-hmm. year olds in the nineties. No. And I think that's so cool that a, that he reached out to you and B, that he gets the tone that you're trying to strike with this book and yeah. that, yes, you want to honor the history and like when this came out, but also like bring it, not make it so like kitschy, I guess, yeah. you know, it's like you want to embrace the way that nostalgia makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And not the way that nostalgia kind of looks like yeah. I don't, I don't want to have you know, I've got a Blu-ray over there of Stranger Things, which is meant to look like an old rental cassette. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of fun, but it's not quite what I was going for tonally. Yeah. I will say one of the things that I really made sure to do early on in the process, because I am aware that I'm a middle-aged guy who's writing about a movie that's very heavily female-driven. And that is... I wanted to make sure the last hands that touched the book as it goes out the door weren't mine. Mm-hmm. And so my editor who is going to be doing this is, uh, is from like, is a woman who's been working with uh, Bob Woodward for the last 10 years or so. Oh, wow. Um, and so Evelyn, and of course I've somehow blanked on Evelyn's last name. She runs open boat editing 
and she's an old friend of my wife's from college actually and oh, she was cool. her, her editing like she basically started her own company broke off from from Woodward and started her own company and it was like immediately we were like we should look we should ask uh, we should ask Evelyn about coming on board and doing this thing mm-hmm. uh, Evelyn Duffy is her name I had to like bring up my email because I am so bad at names <laughs> it happens it's yeah we're but human, yeah all right so, it's, it is one of those things where I just, I wanted to make sure, and it's funny because I, I first of all, I've, I don't think I've told anybody publicly that Evelyn is the editor. So like, that's for you, <laughs> but. Thank you to um, my audience. You heard it here first. But yeah, because I was like talking about me and talking about like the other guy who's like helping me with the design work. I'm like, there are women who are going to see this book at some point, I promise, <laughs> <laughs> which was important to me. Uh, it, it is one of those things where I didn't want to like, I actually, one of the things I explore in the book is the way that men have kind of commandeered this movie in mm-hmm. the course of it becoming a cult classic, because you have this thing where cult classic as a concept is really gendered. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, John Field, who's a comedian who has a YouTube channel, he did this uh, video about how Josie and the Pussycats is the best movie ever. Oh, and, I know that video yeah, so, so well. Know, and you can tell that, you know, cause that's when I say it, that's the pacing he uses as he yep. delivers. So two things about John. First of all, that video is where I first kind of approached this idea that like, oh yeah, like Fight Club is a cult classic three days after it comes out. Mm-hmm. But Josie has to wait 10 years and kind of earn its stripes. And there's something really gendered about that. And mm-hmm. it, it speaks to how the film community treats things that are driven by and aimed at women, mm-hmm. especially young women. And then the second thing, which is much less serious, but is also a fun story for me to share with you. So I was talking to John. He was actually the first interview I did because um, I'm exclusive to my day job. Viacom mm-hmm. CBS has a no compete clause in my contract. And so before I could make this book, I had to I had to go through HR and put in some paperwork and like get mm-hmm. it approved and all that. And while I was doing that, I talked to John and I was just like, hey, if this if the book can't go I'll put this on my podcast Mm -hmm. and so he was actually the first person I spoke with because I didn't want to bother like Rachel and the directors when it Mm -hmm. wasn't really yet but uh I was talking to him and he was like because he knew I was going to talk to fans which is a big part of this is talking with fans about the journey that the movie took from being a box office bomb to a cult classic and like Mm -hmm. why it appeals to people and why it stayed alive for all that time and he goes yeah, you know what you should do? I went to this screening in Brooklyn at the uh, the Alamo. Mm-hmm. They had like a special screening. And he's like, went to this screening in Brooklyn and there was this dude there who was wearing a du jour t-shirt and headphones that were props from the movie. Like, you got to track that guy down. And I was like, John, that, that, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> My first interview ended with the guy telling me that I needed to interview myself. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the, there's video. I'll have to put video up on my social media because it's hilarious. So they had a trivia thing. Mm-hmm. And I specifically did not want to do the trivia thing because I work for comicbook.com for a living and it seems weird. But like they only had two volunteers and my seatmates kept volunteering me. And mm-hmm. so finally they were like, just come on up here. And so I did it. And what I did was I basically hung back and did not answer anything until the other people got it wrong so that I wasn't like being that jerk. But because most of the questions they were asking were about like 1970s Archie comics instead of about the movie, Mm -hmm. um, I still won the thing because like I was unwilling to answer it wrong just to answer it wrong. I was just like, no, I'm going to give everybody else a chance to talk first. Mm -hmm. And so you can see this really kind of hilariously awkward video that I have. It's like three minutes of like, here's five trivia questions. And then at the end, they gave me a record, which I gave to one of the other people afterwards. Nice. (laughs) Because I already had the record and the whole thing seemed very silly. (laughs) But it's funny because they had a trivia thing a couple of nights ago on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh man, I should, I should be part of this. And somebody was like, no, that's cheating. And no, I don't mean like be part of it. I mean, I want to watch the stupid thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. And that's that anecdote. The the thing with John has been one of the great little anecdotes of the whole bit is like, oh yeah. Like literally just somebody who said, who does not know that I'm that crazy guy 
He's like, you should find this crazy guy. And I was like, yeah, don't worry about it. I got it. <laughs> already, already have tracked him down. Yeah. <laughs> That's so fun though. And I, I mean, I respect the fact that you waited for everybody to like answer before you jumped in of like, okay, but this is it. Um, yeah. It just, it seemed like the really, like, if you're going to be, if I, and I, I didn't want to make it like a production of like, no, 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 I'm not going to. So like yeah. when I started asking me instead of just my seatmates, I was like, sure, whatever. Yeah. But I, I specifically, I'm like, I want to do this in the nicest way possible. That's not like crappy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, somebody shot the video. Uh, one of my seatmates shot the video and it's, so it, it, I do have a file somewhere that I should share. Of, you like, should. Winning Josie trivia five years ago in Brooklyn. I mean, uh, not to be your publicist, but I feel like you should do that. Like right before it's released, you know, like yeah. leading up, I feel like that would be like a good time to uh, drop should, that, that nugget. I should give it to somebody who's not. So one thing I, I, I can't write about my book and nobody at my site can write about my book for mm -hmm. conflict of interest. So like, even though I work at a site where we cover comic book movies relentlessly, this book is never going to be mentioned there. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. I'm, I'm not complaining. But what I'm saying is, as a result, I have this weird thing where I'm offering our competitors exclusives because I can't go through us. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, that'll be a thing that, like, you know, the week before the book comes out, I'll ask Den, Den of Geek if they want this goofy video. <laughs> it's like, here, drop this exclusive. Yeah. The author and, of the and, Josie book, uh, just schooling everybody in Josie trivia. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because so much of that stuff, I, I think I just read Sean Howe's, he had a history of Marvel comics, the secret history of Marvel or something. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of the stuff they asked was so weird and obscure. It was like 70s comic stuff. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, the reason that I remember this is because there was a chapter on MLJ in this Marvel comics history that I just read. It's not even because I necessarily knew everything up yeah. until three weeks before. Which now that I think of it is probably where the questions came from because Sean Howe's book was a bestseller at the time. Nice. <laughs> All these months of these interviews, piecing these this story together. What do you want the hardcore fans and just even regular fans to just walk away from reading this? I mean, honestly, the biggest thing I think that the hardcore fans already know, which is that this is a movie that was put together with great consideration and a lot of love by a lot of talented people. And like, I think that because it was a box office failure and also because it was a movie that was like pop driven and directed at teen girls, it's really easy to look at it. And for the, the initial impression to be like, this was a lazy cash grab, you know, that this was an IP that somebody had sitting around. Mm -hmm. And so part of the idea of the oral history is just to be like, there was no part of this that was like a lazy cash grab. Like the, you know, the, the directors didn't have any interest in doing a Josie and the Pussycats movie really until they sat down and thought about like what they could do with it. Mm -hmm. um, the studio had to pitch them twice before they said yes. You know, <laughs> they just come off of can't hardly wait. So they were super in demand for teen stuff. Yeah. But that's kind of another thing is I, I really, and this is, this is lofty ambitions that will never happen because of my book, but I hope that my book can be part of a larger narrative um, that maybe starts with some of this 20th anniversary stuff. This I really would like people to re-examine Deb and Harry as filmmakers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think most people loved Can't Hardly Wait. Deb and Harry also have written scripts for movies that did reasonably well. Like they did, they wrote a very Brady sequel. They wrote the original draft for the movie that 17 writers later would eventually become Save, or Surviving Christmas, ah. um, which they don't like that movie at all, but they did, you know, they have a writing credit. And in the time since Josie, they have not done a single feature film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're doing okay. They went to TV. They've had some shows that are, they're all kind of like, low rated fan favorite things. And now Liza on demand is going on on YouTube, which is actually like a big hit uh, mm -hmm. because it makes that kind of thing a lot easier to find its audience. And so it's not like they're hurting, but I do think that like, there's something that bothers me about this idea that like, as we talk about this film, which has a terrific cast and a terrific soundtrack and all this kind of stuff, it's easy to be like, well, you know, Kay Hanley and Rachel Lee Cook deserve a lot of, a lot of credit for this movie rising above the, the cartoon source material. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not false, but I do think that like, I would love for people to kind of 
re-examine the way that Devin Harry got treated after this movie bombed. I do know that there was, in the commentary track for the movie, they actually talked with Mark Platt, one of the producers, about this Doris Day remake that he wanted to do. And he got it set up for them to direct at Universal, and then that fell apart somehow. So it's not like they never got another offer. It's just that that movie fell apart. And ever since then, I think it was like, well, the Josie, you know. I think that the person who, who made that decision and who was like, you know, Platt came on and was like, we want you to do this. It was partly like, he loves Josie. He understood it. He actually, like, he was traveling around with the second unit in Vancouver for part of the production. Oh, cool. Um, and if you, if you believe him in the commentary track, he says that he had a couple of shots that he directed because they were like, everybody was moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, I don't know about that as an official thing. Cause Mark wouldn't talk to me and the directors disputed. But, but like in any event, he clearly loved the movie and clearly respected them, which is why he tried to get them on their next film. Yeah. But it is one of those things where I, I really would like, in general, for everybody to kind of look at Devin Harry a little bit differently and be like, these are obviously very talented filmmakers who have an ear for very good, very funny kind of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I, even now, it's 20 years later, they're in their 40s, early 50s, and they are making Liza On Demand, which if you watch that show, feels very true to how kind of lower middle class millennial characters would talk, which is a really hard thing to, it's a really hard thing to tackle is to write for young people when you are not a young person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, justice for Deb and Harry. Make that yeah, a hashtag no, on Twitter. Nobody, nobody but you can see it, but I'm yeah. wearing a as directed by Deborah Kaplan and Harry Alphon. I, I noticed it as soon as you uh, logged onto the Zoom. I was like, yes, I love it. And I'm wearing my Josie shirt. Um, oh, very nice. I'm slowly acquiring a, like a, a wardrobe of Josie shirts so that when I end up doing like some YouTube promo and stuff like that the week before mm-hmm. the comes out. I can have a different Josie shirt on every time I'm like on camera. Yeah. Oh, also Super Yaki, the uh, film store, I, which is where I got this shirt from. They just announced that they are dropping a new collection uh, coming up soon. Oh. So, which is exciting. Yeah, I, Cause <laughs> yeah. So you can add that to your collection, which I'm like, I just got this shirt. I don't know if I can afford more, but of course I'm going to look at it and be like, dang it, I'm going to have to get something. I think the the other fun thing too is I have, and this is not to plug me because I have never actually seen any money for any of these things. But on my Redbubble store, I have a bunch of t-shirts that are just, when I bought prop t-shirts, the ones that were worn by the fans in the crowd scenes, Mm -hmm. before I put them up as perks on the Indiegogo campaign, I put them all on my flatbed scanner and so I've been slowly working my way through like the Photoshop magic required to make those things look like a t-shirt that you can actually print and own on Redbubble. But like, that's how I had the DuJour t-shirt when John saw me at that screening was Yeah. I had like, they were all, cause they're all made for teenagers. So they were much smaller than me. I'm not a small dude. And so I, I basically was like, if I scan this and then clean up all the noise, then I can make myself a DuJour t-shirt. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you can you can get some of the shirts that are replicas of the props on my Redbubble store, which I don't know. Like I said, I've never seen a penny from, so I don't consider it self-promotion. <laughs> well, I can totally include a link to it in the description of this episode. So who knows? Maybe a penny will come your way. Honestly, I think I set something up wrong. <laughs> it's like one of those, like, because I get emails all the time. It's like somebody bought this thing. And it's like, if somebody bought that thing 40 times, I feel like I should have been paid. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go, because I've really enjoyed this. This has been so yeah, wonderful. Was- and I'm so excited for you, Russ, truly. And you said earlier that you kind of have taken yourself out of the narrative for this. And so I thought it'd be really fun to put you in the narrative now and ask you some Josie questions. What is your favorite song from Josie and the Pussycats? I think it's probably Shapeshifter. Um, really? Yeah. Part of that is like t- talking to Kay a lot mm-hmm. from uh, while putting together the book. Shapeshifter is the only song in the soundtrack that Kay wrote. 
Oh, wow. And uh, that one, what happened was that at, during production, and this part is pretty well known, although I don't know about the nuts and bolts of it, but during production, they decided like, hey, we're going to make a soundtrack. We need more Josie songs because there weren't enough songs in the movie to fill mm -hmm. a hole. And so the first, that's why half the soundtrack is engineered and produced by Babyface and half of the soundtrack is engineered and produced by Mike Deneen and Adam Schlesinger at, at uh, Q Division. Mm-hmm. And so like what happened was they basically sent everything over to Boston and it was like, hey, here's some songs. Does Kay have any songs? And Kay submitted two songs. And then she got Shapeshifter on the record. And there was a second one. I cannot remember what it's called right now, but it ended up on her debut solo album. Oh, cool. And she was talking about that on the Sirius XM interview that she did the other day. That particular nugget of like, which was that song that's on the Kay Hanley album is, is on there on that, on that show. But yeah, Shapeshifter tends to be the one that I gravitate towards, partly because there's a bunch that I like. Shapeshifter has an energy that I really like, and I make, which makes sense because I like Letters to Cleo, independent mm -hmm. of Joe. But uh, also just the kind of the the warm feelings I have towards Kay, because Kay has been, like, of all the people involved in making the movie, I think the one who has been, like, just the happiest to, like, pick up the phone anytime has been Kay Hanley. If you backed the book on Indiegogo last week, I released this little teaser thing. It's a, it's looks like an old 17 magazine from 2001. It's like 28 pages long or something. And in it, there's a two page spread where it's just Kay Hanley breaking down each track on the soundtrack. Oh, cool. Oh yeah. But that was a thing that I pitched Kay at like 10 o'clock at night, the night before I was like, Hey, can you jump on the phone tomorrow? and do this thing and she was like sure how about this time or this time oh, and so wow. like Kay's been super helpful and super accommodating and and she more than like she loves this this movie as much as anybody else and it's funny because during the course of the book I found out that a lot of the early like acoustic sessions where they're trying to like hone in on what the songs are mm -hmm. Meyer recently found them on a mini cassette while he was cleaning his house because Brecken used to be married to Deborah Kaplan. And so Brecken found this, this micro cassette and he was telling me about it during our interview. And of course he was in the car when we were talking, he was on his way somewhere. So I couldn't be like, give that to Deb right now so that I can have it. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned to Kay that that's a thing that exists. And she's like, Oh my God, I want to hear that. <laughs> oh man. Hopefully it finds its way to you. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was the thing that Brecken, when he was talking to me, he was just like, I need to remember to give that to Kay. <laughs> and, uh, or not to Kay, to, to, Deb. to Deb. And I think Deb gets it that uh, I'll be able to just convince her, like, you know, I'll like pay to get this digitized. <laughs> mm -hmm. So another question I had for you, uh, what is your favorite scene from the movie? There's a couple of things that could go for this. It, my, because I have one specific shot <clears throat> from the movie that mm -hmm. I like so much, that I'll put it on a shirt, and it's the shot of. And this doesn't make as much sense if you if you aren't in Josie, but like there's a shot towards the end of the movie where Josie falls, like she trips mm -hmm. on her heels while she's walking down the street, and this is while she's kind of under the influence of mind control that's embedded in this CD, and so she drops her CD player and suddenly kind of realizes that things aren't right. And they go from a small shot of her kind of looking at the CD to a wide shot of this like burned out, closed down theater that mm -hmm. she tripped in front of. And it's one of those, it's, it's already a pretty cool shot just in the framing of it. And in like, she's this very small piece of a very large thing, but also the movie, part of the commentary and part of the everything is that the movie is saturated with branding. And there's logos in nearly every shot. And the, the, the shots that don't have them are all saturated with really bright colors. And really, like, it's, a, it's a movie that feels like a music video or a commercial intentionally. Mm -hmm. And this one shot towards the end of the movie is really powerful because it looks like something Zack Snyder could have shot. It, you know, it's this one moment of Josie being completely essentially taken out of the movie. You know, it's this moment where she's realizing like, oh, there's something really broken and artificial going on around me. And they use the like the film language to convey that really well. And so I've always like, 
it's not really a scene, but it's one shot that's just so good that I, I love it. And then probably my favorite scene in terms of like the comedy and everything is the scene on the airplane right after they've gotten signed by Wyatt. And so, mm-hmm. cause you have the very nice kind of heartfelt bit that is the core of the movie with the, I swear on my bus pass, you mm-hmm. know, the girl, girls asserting their friendship bond for the audience essentially. And then you cut from that very heartfelt, very like, this is the moment that defines the girls characters over to Alexandra and Alex. And you get the great, what are you even doing here? I'm here because I was in the comic book joke. And so it's like, that scene is a perfect little pellet of the movie in a lot of ways, because Mm -hmm. it's like, you get the sweet, earnest character-driven thing and then immediately cut away from it for this kind of snarky meta joke. I knew that was going to be one of your answers, no matter what, because I've chatted with you before about it. And yes, I think that whole exchange just encapsulates like what this movie is about. It will break the fourth wall with meta jokes, but there is just this this heart and love behind it too that you can't help but just like feel and care for these characters in this way. And it's like, it's a tribute to the writing because it is hard. And you can see this in a lot of superhero movies too. Mm-hmm. It is hard to get people to really care on an emotional level about characters who are archetypes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason that most superhero movies are driven primarily by the plot because these characters are such archetypes that it's really hard to get into the like the little funny grooves that make them feel human. And so instead of doing that, you just focus on how their archetype can like advance this plot. And that's not an insult. It's just a certain way of making films. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the best superhero movies tend to go against that green, which is why Guardians of the Galaxy and Into the Spider-Verse are some of the best received superhero movies because they're completely about character. Yeah. But like, that's one of those things that I think is a a real testament to the character, to the, to the writing is that every character in Josie, in a, in a way you can like pull the camera back slightly and be like, oh, it's that, that person, you know, here's the dumb blonde, here's the, you know, but they never feel like that when they're on screen. Yeah. Russ, thank you so much for uh, hopping on and just not only just sharing your love for Josie, but this passion project that you're doing. And I truly do believe like your enthusiasm for this is what's going to make this book connect with so many different people. And I mean, I can't speak for anybody you've interviewed with as far as like cast and crew, but I could imagine that that they're feeling like the love that you are, you know, resurrecting for them, you know, that this movie has, has a second life and to be able to connect people with these stories and the fans in a way too, is just so awesome. And I could sit and just give you glowing words of affirmation for like the end of time, but we are running out of time. I really, I do hope so. Like one of, at this point now, it's like, I know that I have all of the pieces that I need to make a good book. Mm-hmm. My big concern now is like doing the thing of like, okay, now I want to make something that's worthy of the people who are going to read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because like I'm in this fandom and I've read, I've been, you know, I've read that kind of those books that are like, oh, here's the definitive thing about X. And you're like, really, this is definitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so like, that's my next, that's my next thing is just moving myself into the headspace where it's like, no, I'm going to, do it well. <laughs> mm-hmm. That you are. Where where can people find you? Where can people find out more about the book? Uh, is the campaign still going? Uh, let the people know. The campaign wrapped up over the weekend. However, if you go to the Indiegogo page, which basically just go to Indiegogo and search Josie and the Pussycats, there's really only me. If you go there because it reached its goal, there's like a thing on Indiegogo where if you reach your goal, they'll let you sell off any of the excess inventory that you had listed. Mm-hmm. So like, I haven't printed the book yet, but I just, I did an estimate, like a cost estimate. And I was like, oh, I can print, you know, 300 copies for this much money. And so I listed 300 copies as being available and, you know, 240 of them have sold. So you can still buy a bunch of them at Indiegogo. Once that runs out. I'm not updating it anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So you can go to josiebook.com. 
which at this point is a very bare bones site. It's like a Gumroad store basically, but you can pre-order the book, a companion book that I'm including for with it because it's I, there's a bunch of stuff that I wanted to write that didn't fit into an oral history. This is mm-hmm. basically your point, the, the part where I get to talk. Like the Mm -hmm. companion is basically me going like, hey, I'm going to rant for 10 pages about consumerism and Josie. I'm going to rant for five pages about sexism and Josie, you know, Mm -hmm. and kind of do companion essays almost. Uh, So you can like pre-order the book, you can pre-order that. And and I have a a collection, an ebook collection called The Gold Exchange, Mm -hmm. which I'm including for free with anybody who bought the book. It's just a series of like 40 interviews that I did from 2005 to 2011 with the creative team behind DC's Booster Gold comic. Oh, cool. The sites where I worked at the time, first of all, I wasn't work for hire, so I own all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Second of all, one of them has gone out of business and the other one has reworked their front page so many times that none of this is available online anymore. And so one of the very first media mentions that the Josie book got was at boosterific.com, a Booster Gold fan site who were like, hey, remember that guy who did all the interviews? He's got a book coming out. And so uh, essentially as a thank you to the Booster Gold fan community who came out and bought a bunch of copies of this book, even though they probably didn't really care that much. I was like, okay, if I hit $3,000 in the campaign, I'm gonna tweak these interviews, make them a little bit more publishable as a book and I'm gonna give it to everybody for free. That's so, so awesome. So like, if you're not part of the campaign, you can pre-order the gold exchange there too. I know there are some booster fans who are just like, I don't care enough to buy. <laughs> so yeah, josiebook.com is where you can find all that stuff. You can find me on social media at Russ Burlingame, which is R-U-S-S-B-U-R-L-I-N-G-A-M-E. And uh, I always joke that's really long. And I'm not going to repeat it. So <laughs> underscore podcast is the podcast that I once in a blue moon host. <laughs> I will include all of that into the description. So if you missed the spelling of his name, don't you fret. It is in the description. And as always, you can follow me at Meredith Loftus on Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Fangirl Forum Pod. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you have a fantastic day. See you next time.